Welcome to the ASAP podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We have a somewhat more relaxed intro now, but we are still hoping to provide you with thought-provoking and stimulating conversations with researchers from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the world. As always, you can find out more about us at www.acid-science.com. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Awesome, we are recording. So, hello everyone. I'm here with Riem Yasmin Irscheid. Thanks a lot for joining us on the ACID Science Podcast. So I'll start with a short introduction on your background. You are a doctoral candidate in the music department at King's College London, working on experimental music and world music festival culture in Europe. And your research sits at the boundary between ethnomusicology and sociology, but it also incorporates a lot of practical projects and you're also involved in organizing music festivals across Europe. But before I go into this too much, I think you're much better at explaining your project than me. So maybe we can start out with a kind of general outline of what you are looking at, and then we can, there are a couple of interesting roads, I think, that we can take. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, yeah, so my name is Reem, um, and I'm currently doing a PhD. I'm in my second year at King's College London. I'm a musicologist, so I'm classically trained. So I studied classical music and, um, well, new music um, in Heidelberg, in Germany, um, then studied composition and ethnomusicology in Birmingham, which then led me to apply um, to Oxford, where I did my master's in ethnomusicology and the other part, anthropology of music. Um, and then a little bit of my background, I was then working in events, um, organization in Oxford as well and then started my PhD just last year um, at King's College um, under the supervision of Martin Stokes who's a scholar of Tur Turkish popular music and yeah so my project it's how you explain that which yeah was quite um quite suitable it was um so I study experimental and electroacoustic music across the MENA regions and Germany and what I'm looking at at uh, people that don't really fit into the category of Arabic music that would have been classified as Arabic music just based on the heritage. But those people just do clap music and electro and do music that isn't necessarily Arabic. But those people that I study happen to be of Arab origin and mainly live in Berlin and Mannheim. So yeah, if people ask me, I sometimes say I study alternative Arabic music because it's really hard to explain something that doesn't really work with Marcus if I try to get rid of Marcus so is a bit of yeah as part of that um, I'm curating a music festival um, in Mannheim and um, yeah that's a sort of anti-world music festival but I'm sure we're going to talk about world music and um, sentiments against it in a little bit. You already mentioned a couple of interesting points you know one of this the, the whole issue of, of how do you actually label certain musical genres how do you define music that doesn't Fit like a certain narrative or a certain idea, preconceived idea about, yeah, in the context of alternative Arab music, this whole question of like, is music that is made by Arabic people necessarily Arabic music? And these these kind of questions. And the other is the whole issue of world music. What, what does it label actually refer to? And how does it, like, How was it used, for example, in the 80s in a, in a kind of capitalist, capitalistic setting and how can, can modern world music or these festivals that, that focus on music all around the globe kind of, yeah, re-establish that label without you know, that capitalistic baggage with it? Yeah. So maybe we can start with the role of, of music and, and world music in general in You know, the context of integration and subcultures within diasporic communities, for example, in Germany. Yeah, so actually world music was always like a sort of really handy tool for um, German cultural policymakers in order to just display values of German democracy and liberalism. So it's always been really useful in a way. And it sounds like a really great idea to say we make music with people that, has, uh, that have a migration background or um, music with refugees or whatever that might be the issue is only that whenever we've seen those world music projects since like not only the 1980s but even before that because in the 80s it was a marketing label um predominantly in the uk to market everything that was just other than western music 
to something that just um, pigeonholed everything that was not like sort of white British or white American. Um, so in Germany, we've seen those sort of world music projects uh, far earlier and they were sort of, yeah, sort of used as a sort of way to show cosmopolitan ven ven uh, values and belief system. And the issue is that the sounds are all really great and it seems like that um, musicians are being, um, well, given a stage. But the problem was that a lot of the musicians that were part of those world music prog programs were often orientalized or sort of used in a way that just reinforced the sort of stigma around Arabness. So that would be like, we are the white liberal democratic uh, Germans and we're putting on those sort of not primitive cultures, but there's a sort of way of, well, how do I say that? Um, sort of way of opening up a binary between the sort of rational West and the sort of primitive, very emotional Arab cultural circles. So it didn't really help a lot of the musicians because they often couldn't leave world music stages and were just sort of left to operate within those sort of world music industry structures. So whenever people try to get away from those very stereotypical ideas around Arabness, that wasn't really necessarily encouraged because there wasn't really a market for it because it was all about this very idea of like Arabness being something really specific and that could be seen in the way costumes were worn and sort of certain musical styles. Everything had to be quite oriental. So there was just a very narrow framework in which musicians could actually move. It's, it was quite restrictive. And lately that changed a little bit, which is really great. Like I think people are really aware, like even people that don't work with a musicology or anthropology or post-colonialism and they sort of know what Orientalism means. They've read Edward Said and they sort of know what those issues are. But the thing is that some old frameworks and Orientalist frameworks just get replaced with new ones. So, for example, that could be that um, there are frameworks of resistance, like there's a whole body of literature on the fetishization of resistance, that especially after the Arab Spring, there are a lot of Germans that think we give a stage to those poor people that... Um, were basically suffering um, as a result of the result of the Arab Spring, and that's fair enough. But I think a lot of the time, everyone is sort of thrown within the same like there. Everyone sort of pigeonholed in a way that doesn't really show the nuance of everything and er everything that happened during the Arab Spring. And not every artist is necessarily a resistance artist. Like there are lots of. Arab artists that are not actually political artists, but their music gets politicized quite a lot. And then sort of on the other spectrum, there are a lot of feminine artists that get sort of sexualized and fetishized um, a lot as well. So basically the problem is there are always just new frameworks that give Arab artists a very narrow um, way of representing who they are. That's a very long answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it already contained a couple of interesting points. So maybe starting at the beginning, I think this issue of the duality between the West and and kind of the other, which can be like contain a lot of different cultures and a lot of subtleties that get just kind of wiped under the table by, by just this idea of the Oriental, the other, the this kind of colonial narrative even of, of this kind of a primitiveness that was associated with Africa, for example, during the colonial time and this idea of, of these untouched people that have their own kind of more simple culture and you kind of yeah, fetishize that idea. And that's probably been going on for, for a very long time in, in the, the way the West views itself. And even though we are officially past the colonial stage, there's probably still a lot of, of traces of that left, of that mindset left. Yes, 100%. And I think especially in sort of broadcasting culture, like I think a lot of the institutions, like cultural institutions, and that would mean concert halls, venues and everything, they're a bit um, better at putting on certain shows because some of them, like there are a lot of independent venues, for example, in Mannheim especially, that sort of are aware of those frameworks and try to sort of work around them and sort of give artists more agency and more responsibility when it comes to their own music making and own um, sort of self-representation. But I think the problem is just generally um, the way we learn about and study sort of music that's sort of not um, sort of music of, I don't know, of an Arab background or music made by um, people with an Arabic background at university. Like when I was at university, even in Birmingham, or even at Oxford, it was all very much 
was very sort of essential binaries, like this is the Indian music, this is the Arab music and everything. So the way we study that, even at university level, and the way we listen to it on the radio, it's all still very much working within those categories. Um, like especially in Germany, where world music is often, play, often played um, sort of at red, jazz radio stations, all that sort of broadcasting culture would have to change. And it's really hard to actually advertise for music like that without using those old labels. So I think there's definitely deeper lying issues and it's not just poor, pure maliciousness or something. It's actually, we would have to actually change the way we talk about their music, the way we put it on, the way, yeah, where advertising and marketing works. And sadly, a lot of the music um, wouldn't actually get a lot of viewers or listeners um, unless we actually change our listening expectations, which is exactly what my interlocutors and my project try to do and what those cultural institutions try to do by working together with artists. So, yeah. Yeah, that kind of connects with the next question I was going to ask. So basically, who, who is to blame for this? So if it, if yeah, like the these ideas, I think you already mentioned that to a degree that, yeah, it's, it's a really deeply ingrained problem and you can't like, point your finger towards like the cultural ministries in Germany, for example, that only give out very specific funding or like to the radio stations or the, the subculture itself for, for creating that image or sustaining that image. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Who's to blame? But I think the problem is just sort of history is to blame really. And also German history, because the thing is that it's like um, German identity has always been perceived or like written about as something that's rather unstable and that people really try to hold on to and the way to actually do that is through sort of producing another through which you can sort of well define yourself and yeah so Max Trollick's right uh, Max Trollick writes about that in um well he's there's a really brilliant interview of him um that's called um I'm not your token Jew and also in Desintegriert euch and um yeah all of his other works this is a really brilliant topic the way sort of that Uh, foreigners in Germany or Ausländer uh, play in sort of construction of Germanness. So it's basically, yeah, German history, I would say, and the way um, Germany has dealt with foreigners and people considered others in the past. So it's basically the way that the cultural industry responded to sort of the guest worker program since 55. So Turkish immigrants in Germany and their sort of cultural production, the way it responded to the German unification the way it re like all the sort of German cultural history um, the sort of fantasies of reconciliation that really made Germany construct that other. So I think it's a really a specific German problem. And that's why my field work side changed as well. Like I was meant to actually go to the Middle East to study experimental Arabic music and then realize that the German case is actually so much more interesting, like specifically because of the way that Arabs and uh, well, well, Arabic and Turkish citizens in Germany are depicted, and how they are put into the public sphere by sort of German cultural institutions. So, yeah, yeah, you you also pointed me towards these articles by Max Cholek. So, um, yeah, I found that really like a mind mind blowing <laughs> different perspective on on that whole issue because like to a degree Germany is a very young nation comparably, and especially during national mm -hmm. socialism, during the Nazi regime, you, you had this kind of, you created the other, which was based on anti-Semitism or like the, the sole notion of, of the superior race. And then you, you created the other in the form of Jews that you could rally against and kind of unite against. But now kind of conversely, you, you, you move in the opposite direction and you, you pretend kind of, you create your self-image again around another but around kind of now integrating that other instead of persecuting it yeah and specifically i think um and that's why the world music industry or especially arab and turkish citizens of germany are so interesting because um the role that islam plays like max Trollick is really brilliant but he writes like predominantly on sort of jewish citizens of germany he does mention the way that um, well, Muslims get stigmatized, but the thing is, Germany is still a Christian country. Like the way Germany runs from sort of the Sunday rest to like the way, like certain just, I don't know, certain rules and mannerisms work. It's, it's uh, predominantly like white Christian, well, imagined as white um, Christian nation. And Islam does pose, like, if you listen to all those political speeches or even read like Zarazin's book that came out in Deutschland schafft sich ab in 2010. 
um, people do say horrible things like the Islam doesn't belong to Germany. And I think when it comes to the sort of new other, it's always something that firstly, well, first and foremost, threatens German identity and German self-understanding. And right now that that's just Islam because people find it not only is some like that's not only something mystical or something that sort of you can put the Orient, orientalist framework on or the orientalist gaze but it's something that really frightens people and that's i think why a lot of people try to be really nice about it and do refugee theater and try to like sort of you know include um islamic art and cultural practices into well into the sort of German culture sphere, and the issue with that are only then those white saver narratives that I was just mentioning earlier, that that then becomes as well intended as it is, it then just becomes another sort of issue. So there's just a lot of issues there, but my research is generally more positive than that. Like in the beginning, I'm obviously pointing out a lot of the negative things, but that's kind of quite necessary in order to point out the potential that sound art and experimental music can then offer in order to sort of subverse those expectations. Yeah, yeah. Probably the like the public discourse around these topics is always has this per performative aspect to it. And Max Scholleck also mentioned this Gedächtnis Theater, so like remembrance theater. So the, the whole fact that in the public discourse and public perception, yeah, you always kind of act out a certain ideal of of how you view yourself and and Germans see themselves as really good at dealing with their past for example yeah and also like seeing themselves as um like a nation that has been liberated from um from anti-semitism and sort of nazi regimes um not seeing themselves as a perpetrator but as a victim but yeah charlie talks about that a lot yeah like sort of and that's the sort of issue if you never see yourself as a perpetrator um oh you're ever going to deal with the past it's just sort of going to be yeah always going to be an issue yeah and the, the whole topic of, of immigration became much more like present on, on everyone's mind or in the public perception in the refugee, refugee quotation mark crisis that happened in 2015, where there was a lot of like a strong influx of, of refugees from Syria specifically. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that kind of dominated public discourse in Germany. And then the alternative for Germany, the AfD became really strong and it seemed like the whole country was was kind of dividing around that topic. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, that just underscores how how interesting the the things you are looking at are actually then how this subculture is perceived or kind of the the role music then plays in in shaping that public image of of the refugees, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can go a bit deeper in in this yeah, subcultural musical scene in in Germany more specifically and the things you are looking at there. Yeah, so um, in terms of what I'm looking at, I'm looking at musicians that label their music as experimental music, and that sort of can mean everything. So it's quite for someone like me um, who's doing sort of research on something that's really hard to define. Um, experimental is actually really useful because there could be anything and there could be nothing. So at the sort of early stages of a PhD, that's always quite useful. And the reason it's useful is because when it comes to experimental music, as opposed to the avant-garde, it has less sort of elitist, um, well, connotations to it. When people hear Arab avant-garde music, avant-garde this and that, it seems to gesture towards a sort of Euro-American um, tradition in which avant-garde was sort of, well, part of sort of elite classical music scene. So if you, that would sort of, that would incorporate John Cage and Yanis Denakis or a lot of people that do more sort of experimental musical styles. Uh, so I deliberately don't use avant-garde because it also just a lot of the musicians think it just sounds really, well, it doesn't really match what they're doing. And when it comes to experimental music, that could incorporate experimental music styles such as sound art and free improvised music. That could mean that people experiment not only with the music, but with dance and with certain instruments. So the people that I'm looking at they don't sometimes use the instrument the way they're sort of quote unquote um, supposed to be used, but they use forks, brushes, rubbers. They use a lot of sort of extra musical tools that they then incorporate in the musical practice. And the thing is with those musicians, whatever they do is really hard to pinpoint because the genres or the musical styles in which they work, they always change. And I think when it comes to those the people I study, it's all about insecurity 
and uncertainty. And these are the two key words of my research, I would say, because it's always hard for audiences to listen to the music that, for example, Rabia Be'aini, which is one of my interlocutors, or just Turnbull, what they do. And that's a really good thing because whenever audience members are challenged, it sort of gives room for something really new and really subversive to arise. So, yeah, it's really hard to define what they're doing and I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, but it's exactly that, creating uncertainty, creating radical unintentionality and sort of creating an environment in which people can try certain instruments and things out together with German musicians. So basically encouraging real exchange in which musicians actually actively make music, make mistakes and don't sort of try to create some sort of shiny world music version that's a sort of perfect hybrid because... At the end of the day, when people say music is a language or whatever people say, it's it's not really that that music should be perfect or communication is perfect because when it comes to dialogues between different cultures, it's there are going to be disagreements and that's just the reality. And if you sort of don't cater for that and like sort of don't reflect that in the music, it's just sort of an unreal reflection of what people want to have. So, yeah, I don't know. It sounds all, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned this uncertainty as being you know, the, the center of, of the music that's being produced. So maybe this is a very difficult to answer question, but is it like the uncertainty kind of opens the, the stage for this cooperation or is it also meant to represent kind of a, aspects of, of the lives of, of of these people inside the subculture that it kind of, yeah. I don't know if, if music is always supposed to represent something or kind of express something emotionally or if it should be taken for what it is, basically, only music. Yeah, that's the thing. It, the good thing is about those, well, about these musicians, it doesn't have to represent anything because those musicians sort of challenge the idea that a perfect cultural product has to pop out of whatever sort of experimental um, co collaboration they do. So I look specifically at collaborations rather than individual musical works. So the musicians I'm looking at would be either Lebanese musicians or Jordanian musicians that then collab collaborate with German musicians that play sort of Arab instruments or sometimes just the trumpet or the, or the trombone. And um the way certainty plays into those collaborations is that um, they would record free improvised music that's not rehearsed. So they would actually play together in a way that feels right in the moment and in which they respond to one another in the moment. And that's really important. And obviously uncertainty is going to rise because doing, like for every musician that's listening uh, to this podcast right now, improvising is the most challenging thing I would say for every musician I'm a drummer and whenever I had to improvise or even on the saxophone um I would just be terrified because it actually reveals most of your vulnerabilities and would actually put you on the spot but I think that just bears a lot of potential for actually creating real exchange sort of exchanging those vulnerabilities and actually sort of thinking on your feet and that's why this uncertainty should sort of be recorded and should be part of any music video or any musical collaboration and not be cut out in order to look like in order to sort of replace it with some yeah shiny uh perfect uh, perfectly curated hybrid so i think having uncertainty in the music making process is important but also having the uncertainty in a way of sort of not knowing who's coming to concerts and actually like sort of gambling with that because the thing is It's um it's really easy to if you put like a sort of Persian rug and sort of some Orientalist imagery on a flyer, certainly people are going to show up because they know what to expect. And it's always a gamble if you sort of miss on those well, if you leave out those markers of like imagined Arab identity and just sort of see who's showing up. But sometimes it could be sort of an even more interesting audience that shows up. So I think uncertainty in a lot of ways when it comes to the curatorial process, to the music making process to the way the music is listened to just plays a major role. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting counterpoint to the yeah, way in world music or world music and capitalism is actually used. And you, you mentioned this shiny product that it's at the end of this process a couple of times. And yeah, it just reminds me of, of the, the way modern pop music, for example, is produced and that you have this very well-measured 
you infuse this well-measured degree of of orientalism or some kind of yeah non-standard non-western style into it but it's always very very well thought out in advance so it's, it's the complete opposite of, of what's happening in this these other music scenes yeah and it also sort of poses so many expectations on the arab artists that sort of can't articulate what they want to articulate so it's just not real in a lot of ways because there are a lot of sort of well there's some really interesting research on that and like marta miko is writing about that she's the scholar um she's based in france and she writes about the world music sound where musicians would go into a recording studio and they would put certain production measures on that and produce it in a way that produces that certain world music sound where they think, oh, this is not others enough or that's like not world music enough. So they basically create music for the sort of wide Western ear rather than actually sort of, well, um, using the music that's produced in the studio. So yeah, there are just a lot of steps in between that sort of get in between the sort of real music that's made and what we then actually listen to on the radio, thinking that that's actually what the musician was recording in the recording studios. So yeah, there are just so many aspects about that, the production aspects and broadcasting and yeah, whatnot. But so maybe I'm I'm going to recycle my previous question and ask again who's to blame. So I, I just like the Beatles popped into my mind and that whole interaction with Ravi Shankar, for example, mm. through George Harrison and this integration of the sitar into Western classical, uh, like in, into Western popular music. And yeah, I guess from then on, it, it became even more, like more and more standard to incorporate these kind of things into music. 100%. And I think obviously, um, I think not only Beatles, I mean, in classical music, there was so much more Orientalism before. And I've, I've been studying that um, as part of my undergraduate degree in musicology. There's so much so much um, research on um, on the inclusion of folklore and folk music and like sort of more classical styles. But I think with the Beatles, it's a certain really interesting case. And I don't think actually George Harrison is completely to blame. I think Peter Gabriel and uh, Malcolm McLaren, I think, are probably far more to blame. But I think what's a really interesting case about George Harrison is that um, is that he actually learned the instrument from Ravi Shankar. So I think as opposed to other musicians in the 80s that actually just went to indigenous communities, recorded the music of, say, indigenous choirs, didn't pay them, used the samples and sold it as their own music and just sort of became millionaires off those samples. I think that's far worse than what George Harrison did, which is a super interesting case for what Mark, Mark Sloban was discussing as affinity interculture. So people sort of feeling them being part of a culture based on their affinity or their knowledge of a certain um, culture that sort of gives them the same tools to articulate sort of certain cultural practices. And I think um, George Harrison actually, he studied, he studied that sitar. Like he was actually learning how to play it. I mean, probably not in the most traditional way, but it's a really interesting case for someone actually engaging with those cultural practices um, in a way that's sort of well, he fused it, obviously, with pop music, but I think um, as opposed to the way sampling culture worked, it's a far more genuine, far more engaged way. And obviously that's based on someone's probably Orientalist curiosity, but um, I think it's always a really good, really interesting thing if people actually engage with those practices and learn those instruments. And a lot of the German musicians I'm looking at are actually doing the same, studying like um, sort of Iranian drumming um, from those teachers. And I think that's a really nice way of sort of cultural knowledge being passed on. Yeah, I completely agree. I think with George Harrison, it, it was a very genuine in interest in the instrument and in exploring these sounds. And there's also this um, album he recorded with Ravi Shankar, which is called, I think, Sound of India or something, and which is really kind of a very classical um, Indian style music. So he... I think he, he got so involved into the musical style that it was kind of fair play and he didn't go in there with the intention of, of making a lot of money with it without actually yeah, Maybe he getting did. in touch with it. <laughs> but I hope you yeah, shared yeah. it with Ravi Shankar. That's sort of the one thing that like a lot of ethnomusicologists, so I will obviously uh, take a closer look at. It's like how how do royalties work? And obviously this is probably another PhD thesis, but it's always really interesting to ask musicians and um, curators and that's a really uncomfortable question to ask like how much are you playing each artist or especially with residencies how much are those people like getting what are your what are the resources you offer and what are the sort of resources that you're taking 
So you have to be quite sort of, I mean, all cultural anthropologists at this point um, have a sort of Marxist um, approach to, um, well, to culture and culture. And that's just because we have to look at those sort of economic divides and the way like, and just like basically look at who's profiting from this and who is sort of the more vulnerable person here and so on. Like, it's always really interesting um, to ask those questions, even though they're uncomfortable. Yeah, so maybe we can actually go in that direction because I also found this very interesting. So, yeah, I don't know where where best to start, but maybe in general, if you if you look at these um, musicians, for example, in, in Mannheim and Berlin, so who is actually paying for them? Maybe also with respect to these collaborations, if, yeah, what what's kind of the monetary story to be told behind that? Yeah, so a lot of those things are actually arts council or basically um, it's sort of funded by the Kulturministerien or sort of Kulturstiftungen. So a lot of sort of arts funding or the Ministry of Culture. Most of them are sort of funded projects based on sort of, well, efforts for cultural diplomacy. So that's basically sort of not old world music thought, but sort of a sort of world music s thought of um, while we try to sort of foster and support um, migrant communities, but in a way that's obviously more well, aware of the um, discrepancies and like more aware of what the world music industry have have done wrong. And that's sort of why I call it post-world music, because people are actually aware of, of the sort of problems that um, Arab artists encountered previously. And I think a lot of those funds are actually really well-intended and most of them are actually quite accessible. But what I'm looking at, especially sort of funding of like Goethe Institute, or those sort of, um, well, very local arts funds, sort of how accessible are those funds? Because a lot of the time, um, especially, for example, in Baden-Württemberg or just like in Mannheim, a lot of those projects would only get funded if they have a sort of reference to Mannheim or sort of if they sort of reference something and are sort of, well, incorporating, incorporating local elements and actually sort of benefit the local community. And sometimes the question is with a lot of transnational music, how local can that music be? be and would they actually satisfy those those expectations so I think it's really important to consider or basically to sort of look at how wide the exit is and who can actually participate and who can actually apply because it's actually not handy to uh, sort of bring out a call of funds and it's just in German because there are just so many great artists that could actually benefit from those funds and the same with sort of really complicated long applications no artist that's sort of um, not already like super established and has an agent and actually knows how to access those funds and applications will actually apply because most musicians are in super precarious situations. Most of them are freelancers, don't have a lot of money, might have a working class background. So I think it's always like if we think about how we reverse those in, well, how we reverse those inequalities, it's always important to think about how to open up the field to make it a level playing field when it comes to actually applying for money. And so the other money givers would then generally be just some um, cultural institutions that just put one-off performances on at festivals. That would obviously probably be funded either through their sort of, well, ticket income or, well, also through sort of other arts funds. But yeah, in Berlin, that's obviously a little bit more diverse just because, well, there's a massive migrant community and like a big Arab and Turkish community. But yeah. I myself, I mean, I'm putting concerts on and the way we work is that, I mean, I use my arts council funding from, um, I'm sort of funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK, so I can use my own research funding, which I can basically like put anything on because they're really open-minded. And when it comes to my, the music festival that I create, um, it's also funded by the Allianz Kulturstiftung that put a real good focus on post-migrant cultural production. And they are, yeah, extremely generous and sort of, um, do a lot of great projects right now, such as Outer National or Planet Ears, which is, yeah. Yeah, maybe we can go into those festivals as well at, at one point. Yeah, I was just wondering how much influence the, the money givers will in the end have. Also relating back to, to this whole idea of if it's, if it's, for example, the money comes from the German cultural ministries. So how much say do they actually want to have in, in the end product of, of cultural production? Yeah, I think it's always about the sort of results and that's sort of part of the problem because if you expect results in order to show that cultural hybridity, quote-unquote, like sort of was achieved, um, I think that's always a problem. But I think a lot of the sort of more, a lot of the newer funds or the funds that we use for our um, 
project are mainly based on ticket sales as well. Like when we get um, local arts funding from sort of Mannheim German Cultural Bureau, it's all about obviously generating some profit, but it's not like entirely commercial. So it's all about sort of showing that um, what people would actually show up, it would have obviously an impact on the local community, which is as such a really good thing. And a lot of the sort of, well, the two or three money sort of, well, the funding sources that we use are very, very linear, or like very unexpecting in a way. And that's sort of a really good thing. The Allianz Kulturstiftung, they don't um, sort of check up on the musical styles and stuff. And you are generally really open to, well, invite artists that fit, like sort of fit that profile. So it's all about, I guess, applying for a project um, with a festival with a very certain profile and then sort of reflecting that in the music that's played at that festival. And the festival that we do is all about sort of challenging very certain ideas about tradition and about um, origin and sort of reflecting that in the sort of music we put on that then sort of, yeah, reverses those expectations. So I think we did that at the past festival, which was a very, very sort of diverse lineup in a way. Um, we didn't really have like a certain genre. We had like a DJ from South Africa. We had um, Gnawa artists from Morocco um, that were playing well electronic Gnawa music and we just had a lot of sort of local traditional styles that really didn't fit in a sort of that was like all mixed together but at the end all of those artists had a very certain well sort of shared narrative about how they view tradition how they view themselves and how they view cultural identity in general so it's all about sort of shared belief systems yeah we talked about this a bit uh before this podcast but the the question of how you actually organize these kind of festivals and and how this this works how, how do you create that kind of shared mindset behind all the people that participate in this festival how do you create an interesting experience for for the participants and something that's actually worthwhile so how, how do you go about organizing a festival and booking artists so we have them um, like a really great person there that's um a booker so bookers are basically i think it's just the most use like a sort of it's well I think every festival needs a booker so someone with um, connections to the music industry uh, that really knows how to write agents and sort of find the right artists that match those um to match the profile of the festival because it's sometimes really hard to get in touch with artists especially if they're touring internationally and if they're already quite established um you need someone that sort of full-time well is sort of on the case full-time and Ubu Grunewald who is the booker in the Alte Feuerwache Mannheim He was basically in charge of finding people that are, well, obviously with agreement of everyone else that worked there as sort of fit the festival. And that's mainly artists that sort of use musical styles in a way that I, well, that either experiment in a way that you can't put any label on it. So basically music musicians that sort of use sounds to the extreme that sort of experiment with volumes, textures and things that just, um, well, um, use sort of traditional instruments in a really extreme way. So there's always an element of that something that could be considered traditional and that sort of being challenged on stage. And the sort of other thing that uh, he was looking for, or we were looking for, were um, a lot of sort of electronic mediations of traditional music because when it comes to sort of the old world music industry, a lot of that was acoustic world music or obviously samples and something that had a very clear separation of now this is the Western musical part and now this is the Oriental part and these are the two elements that so there were quite fixed elements. So we were looking for musicians that actually merged those in sort of on into another that you couldn't really see what would be the sort of Turkish part and what wasn't. And um, that's, could, for example, be, I'm just using Rabia Albayani again as an example, um, who's a DJ from Lebanon who lives in Berlin, who layers five different or sometimes six different rhythms, um, however many rhythms, on top of one another. But you can't really separate them out. Like, it sounds really confusing. It could be a drumming beat. It could be another sample. It could be a sort of Indonesian sample. It could be um, just a techno beat. And you can't really separate them anymore. And that creates, obviously, a lot of confusion. That also creates lovely soundscapes that sort of, really challenge those binaries between like sort of element a element b element c so basically we were looking for people that sort of used technology and like use their instruments in a very well more challenging way 
And um, obviously, the thing is, sometimes you end up hiring very similar people because there are only a couple of festivals right now in Germany. And CTM is another one of them in Berlin that actually put on those kinds of music. So you sort of look what other people put on. You also like check what's out there right now and what's sort of trending. And um, yeah, and people would recommend other people. So it's also a massive network where you can find artists based on the sort of artists you previously played uh, had played at your festival. And you obviously have to be aware of um, not putting on the same artists all the time, but there are some people that are really big on the scene and pioneers in those ways. And it's important to sort of give them the stage as well as um, well less well-known musicians and women, of course, because they are basically very much lacking in that industry. Yeah, I find found this part interesting about him, like lay layering several different tracks and kind of different rhythms and this whole idea of, of music kind of being pushed out of the boundaries of this classical way of, of thinking, for example, about rhythm. There's um, a pianist called Tikran Hamasian. I don't know if you know him, but he's experimenting a lot with um, Armenian rhythms and kind of very out-of-the-box kind of rhythms. But as as classically trained people in the in the Western tradition, we, we like to think of them or like kind of put them in the boundaries of of, a, of the bars and of certain keys and, and all of these structures that help us kind of understand how music works. And, and going to these concerts, and I was also part of, of two of the concerts, at the festival in Mannheim. And I found that really interesting to kind of, yeah, you constantly try to put music, kind of the, the framework that you inherited from your tradition. And then if, if, you, if, you, if the music pushes you out of that, it can be really kind of disorienting experience because you, you feel like, like, can this even be music? I don't, I don't get mm. it. Yeah, which of the two um, concerts um, out of interest were you visiting? Because then I can sort of talk a little bit more about what those agendas were. Yeah, the one was um, in the in the Alte Feuerwache and with Bösa Ferrari and Jutta Glaser and Shalisenawi. Yeah. And the other one was yeah, where we actually met. Kind of this combination between Colombian music yeah. and electronic music. To be a yeah, yeah. And these were two really really different concerts, and I think especially yeah with Kubiatron, um, there were sort of more well audience focus like it's sort of dance music and is very sort of happy and uh, very much sort of meant to sort of entertain whereas I think what Klaus Busa Ferrari, Jutta Glaser and Sharif Senawi were doing is quite challenging to listen to and was actually trying to really sort of challenge audience members and Klaus Busa Ferrari is a really interesting case he played at a lot of uh, festivals around the world including the Etijal Festival for Experimental Music in Beirut and he always says he actually is sort of not honored when people walk out, but he sort of wants to provoke a reaction. And that's sort of the whole point of this a very extreme end of the avant-garde that Klaus Bezefari or Sharif or Jutta are um, sort of working in. It's all about challenging people to the extremes and sort of not leaving them confused, but leaving them think about their own frameworks and sort of what they might have expected and really like mindfully listen to it. So it's a lot about like mindfulness and sort of being actually able to open up in the moment and actually not resist it. Like you could probably think, oh my God, this is really horrible to listen to. This is very annoying. I don't understand it. But once you're sort of over that point, you could actually be like, well, why don't I understand it? Why don't I like it? Or maybe I do like this very certain part. Why do I like that? So really sort of thinking in the moment but obviously you would have to have a very certain audience for that or you can actually educate your audience if that's what what you want as a musician yeah it's also quite interesting because people have been walking out of concerts for hundreds of years i mean there's so many stories also from the western classical tradition exactly. <laughs> from stravinsky to like beethoven symphonies yeah. so like like the, the novel and it's hard to understand was always provocative and I always think that's the case when people ask me, like um, I was doing this interview with um, Deutschlandfunk and it was exactly about that point of, um, well, what if people never get used to that? Uh, or basically, what if people never get Arab experimental music and will it always stay niche? And I always think like, well, people completely forgot that the Beatles were something or even Elvis was something that people were completely shocked by. And the same was going for yeah. um, Chicago house music. I mean, house music and techno was everywhere. Whenever people hear a dance beat, 
um like oh especially when you go to experimental sort of club music and people hear dance beat they would be like oh i recognize this i want to dance to this this is really exciting but the thing is it house music in the 80s had such a slow uptake people were so confused and i think it's always just about sort of giving it a little bit of time like now it seems really insane to think that people didn't like house music i mean it's literally in every bar and every restaurant even in probably mcdonald's but the thing is like now it's just everywhere and i think it's always like sort of giving it time and giving it the right stage and sort of putting it out in the public square and sort of educating people and giving them the chance to actually be confused at first in order to sort of get over that and actually search out those places very actively on their own accord yeah a related point i was also thinking about was kind of how you know how much you know about that or thought about that but now the, the whole transformation of the music industry in the last couple of years mm. with the spotify and youtube and all of these new ways of listening to music and moving away from record sales Yeah. kind of put different kind of also financial pressures on the whole industry and how that kind of changes the landscape. Yeah, it sort of certainly did. But the thing is, in another way, it sort of gave a lot of way for, well, when it comes to sort of DIY music making to actually enabling a lot of the artists to get out there in the first place. So especially when it comes to sort of music making in Iran or music making in sort of other parts of the Middle East, it's always really important to consider like how great Ableton and like all those other programs and softwares, music production softwares. And it's always important to consider how um, important those sort of, well, the advancement in digital music making is in order to bring those more into the public, well, bring it, like bring it onto the internet for people to listen to. And obviously um, it's really hard when you then think about who listens to this um, to actually, well, get money for that music and actually, well, Obviously, it's one thing to put it on SoundCloud and produce it really cheaply. In the past couple of years, that's obviously been like so much easier. But when it comes to actually promoting it and everything and actually finding the right audience and getting money for it, I mean, that's all, well, mostly um, dependent on connections and really well, sort of very good contacts to the music scenes, especially like European urban centers. The thing is, like, in one way, it's much easier to market yourself on Instagram if you're really good at it. There's so many artists or like people that are so great at this. There's this one musician called Khayam Alami. He's um he just invented this really amazing tuning software where you can actually tune out of those sort of Western harmonic system. And he's a brilliant musician and he's using Twitter. Now he's like created his whole Telegram channel. He's really good at it. He's given conference papers. Um, he's sort of in that intersection between like a practicing musician that also plays at like Berlin's biggest venues, but also being a brilliant researcher. And I think sort of, you have to be as an artist nowadays with the sort of changing music industry, you have to be able to play those certain roles and sort of have a sort of fluidity of your roles for you. Not only the musician, like back in the day where you have like an agent or like you have a music production company, but actually run your own record label or know someone that does actually create your own content, be your own PR person. It's so much harder, but I think it's actually really important to think about those aspects of sort of modern musicianship and especially Arab musicianship actually playing all those roles and um all branding yourself in a way that's actually really beneficial to you but yeah on spotify i think that's one of the sort of okay places but i think youtube is a really great way because it's much easier to put your music on there and especially the way the algorithm works that's how i discovered a lot of the arab music that i'm listening to right now so sort of finding the right platforms i think is really important yeah youtube is really a fascinating way of of actually yeah just finding an audience out of out of nowhere and especially for music that is more kind of niche or more difficult to listen to and that doesn't really yeah many people that don't have too much time to to spend with music and experimental music probably don't don't fall into that category but you can potentially reach people all around the world just on youtube and you don't have to find like people in your local neighborhood that want to listen to your experimental music but it, it really opens up a lot of the constraints Exactly. And I think it's also really important to think about that divide between, well, the divide or not divide between the digital and the sort of physical in a way. And in a way, the divide is sort of less and less because the way that people even collaborate within those residencies that I look at, um, they collaborate in a way that's both, that works both digitally and sort of and sort of in person as well. But when it comes to concerts, I think that sort of specific type of experimental free improvised music sort of just works when you're actually there because the thing is when it comes to those extreme volumes 
you need to be present in the moment in order to be able to not change that. Whereas if you listen to the same music on your sort of headphones, even if they're stereo or like the sort of every, everything that musicians attend when they put on that music and when they put a lot of effort into sort of, panning and all those effects, it doesn't really come across really well in YouTube videos. And especially when it's too loud, you could actually change the volume, turn it down, and then the shocking moment is gone. Like you basically disable the way you could actually listen to that music and be shocked. So I think with a lot of that music, it's really important to actually go to those live shows and experience it in the physical space with a lot of the other people, because especially the way people around you react really influences the way you listen to that music. If people like look at that music, look super concentrated and you don't know what's going on, you will feel stupid. And I've I had that happen to me before. I think, am I the only one that doesn't get that? That's horrible. Like, and I feel like, well, so this must be really big. This must be important. But most of the time, most of the people are really confused. And sort of like bouncing like off your sort of own thoughts of those other audience reactions is also sort of really nice um, side effect of going to those live gigs. So I think, yeah, basically live music should just have, obviously after COVID, just sort of more be in the center of that musical network rather than the sort of recorded music, which is nice to listen to, but definitely less relevant in a way. Yeah, there's something very special about live music. I think that you could very almost physically sense now after the, during the first after COVID concerts and in quotation marks, but there was this really this sense of everyone being super enthusiastic about finally being there in experiencing it kind of in this shared setting because YouTube indeed has a lot of advantages, but it's also kind of a lonely enterprise if you, if you don't meet up with people to, to listen to YouTube and you can, I think it, there's a certain danger in, in the fact that you can just switch and that you always have like 10 new videos in, in the sidebar. So that it makes it harder for you to kind of experience these aesthetic, aesthetic elements of, of kind of displeasure or something being too loud or being horrible and you're not forced to understand it because you can just move on to the next video. Exactly. And patience is obviously another thing. And um, it's obviously like, yeah, quite the opposite of easily listening most of the time. And I think whatever we want at home um, after a sort of long day is definitely not something that basically challenges us. So, yeah. Another interesting category of, of, of topics that you mentioned previous to this podcast is the, the whole question of effective musicianship. So this idea that obviously music is tied up with our emotions and a sense of belonging and all of these things. So we can quickly define the what effective musicianship means yeah so i was sort of um that was sort of more like a working concept that i employed for a conference paper that was giving um earlier this year and um, i sort of tried to merge ideas around like effective um citizenship where sort of well where people like Mukherjee were talking about um ways in which people experience citizenship through sort of shared emotions to sort of well shared experiences and I think when it comes to musicianship I'm not writing about citizenship as part of my PhD but more about musicianship that includes like the way people work the way people are branded the way people sort of struggle within the music industry and sort of more economic factors and sort of the more behind the scenes of a music person factors and I think I always think like musicianship was like a sort of neglected factor of music research or ethnomusicological research because I think a lot of people focus on musical analysis or like they're focused on sort of the sociocultural context of the music. And I sort of, I do that a little bit, but what I found really interesting is the way that musicians brand themselves and the way they actually work on a, an everyday basis or like mundane activities and like the way they actually collaborate with people and how all the sort of social relations work out for them. So the thing is that I thought or what I sort of noticed is that a lot of the curators and a lot of the musicians that I was looking at, they had this shared aversion. Um, and I'm just using a fact as a sort of not synonym, but a sort of very similar word to emotion, this shared aversion or like anger or like sort of discontentment with the world music industry. And that was the glue that was tying those people together. And that was the question I was asking myself, like, what is it? that brings all those people together and makes those festivals like Planet Ears happen. What is it like? Is it a sort of sort of a person that stands at the center of it? Is it a certain musical style? Because the thing is, the musicians that we had as part of the festival, they were all so different and they all didn't know each other. And I just thought, well, there must be that sort of glue. Um, I don't know how, or that polyfilla. And that polyfilla was the sort of aversion against the sort of world music narrational strategies. 
and that sort of what I meant by the fact of musicianship there's a certain affect and just a certain sentiment and belief system that ties all those people together which I think is so much more relevant than a sort of geographical place because those people they are not really tied to music institutions and they're not really even friends um, and they're not even part of like they're not even working with the same geographical boundaries but they all know each other or they all are brought together through that sentiment so that's what effective musicianship meant to me it's interesting to again to to have this kind of phenomenon where a version or like a common yeah crutch can can bring people together but i guess there's also there more positive elements of of just the music itself bringing people together like in, in the jazz scene for example there's this very common passion about just jazz music and have this phenomenon of you can jam with people at a session that you have never played with any of them before but you still quickly form this bond of having this kind of common language and this communication that can just instantly happen without any words spoken before there's also something magical about that yeah definitely and like i was when i was some um attending a couple of rehearsals actually quite interesting how little people actually talk before the rehearsal and that can be really limiting but also really liberating and I think I always thought about it as liberating only uh, liberating only but I think when I was at the rehearsals I realized those musics also need a structure as well it's always like fair enough to sort of think oh music is going to bring people together but especially with experimental intellectual acoustic or free improvised music there has to be sometimes a certain structure or certain boundaries as well for some at least that would be like well then that's when you improvise and that's when you improvise and we improvise about around that effect or that emotion and that word will trigger this so there's sometimes a lot of more thought going into that yeah and that's again where where theory kind of comes in and yeah there's like in jazz for example there's a certain language and a certain way of notating chords and scales that you play over certain chords that kind of gives you this framework that makes it easy to to just agree on on a certain way of playing even without having to establish that in advance but again then if you move between different kind of frameworks for example if you look at um, more classical arab music that uses these um, yeah quarter tones or not even quarter tones quarter tones is what it's usually depicted like in, in in the western tradition but you have this very specific tuning for for specific scales and these are usually taught by ear but if, if you just have to force them into like this western way of of notating them it, it becomes really difficult to make sense of them and if you yeah then hop in between these kind of different frameworks it can be i think probably a bit tricky to 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 agree on exactly on a way of playing and i think that's why a lot of the um a lot of the musicians that work within that realm work with graphic scores and photographs like i was um, attending this one workshop which is um, another great residency program, One Beat, which is run by the US Department of State. I was observing one of the rehearsals of one of the experimental music residencies and people work with sort of little signs, triangles, circles, and things that actually, they obviously, they explained what those circles meant. And one of, like, one of the circles were just like play a sound of um, your room or like play this and that. And I think sort of giving more freedom in the notation as well, because I don't know any musicians that was part of this year's festivals that actually work with western notation or like the notation in the way that we learn that in our sort of musical logical um well studies so i think sort of considering other ways this music is noted and other ways of um well visualizing music is also something really important yeah and it's it's interesting that <laughs> i mean you just yeah just invent completely new ways of of putting it on paper yeah maybe going a bit back to to the topics from the beginning so the the role that arab music now plays in in, in germany more specifically also like pertaining to your research topic so maybe also like you can also talk a bit about what what kind of the, the aim of your thesis is and the, the field work you're doing and kind of the challenges of basically doing research in the field. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm currently just doing my field work preparation. So it's obviously, um, it can always like change because we never know. Um, like as an anthropologist, you will be like, you can plan as, as much as you want, but when you go into the field, something else could completely throw you off and change your topic 180 degrees. But um, 
what I think would be interesting to look at is sort of those music collectives that are formed between German musicians and Arab musicians and the way they think about traditional music and the way they either reject it or think of it as something that's potentially really liberating and empowering. Um, so looking at that, but also, yeah, I think what the challenge could obviously be is draw boundaries around the field, sort of, so thinking about like, is it just Mannheim and Berlin or whenever those musicians play in other cities and find musicians that are very like-minded, do I go there as well? So actually things my fieldwork is less bounded already in sort of two sort of countries or cities is actually more following the individuals and following the institutional networks. So it's a very sort of vast field Like when it comes to my field side, that's obviously very dependent on where individuals go. So it's quite mobile field. I think that could obviously be a challenge for someone that could, uh, yeah, is going on field work for only six months. Yeah. And you mentioned also that in order to, to really, so you, you don't just go in there and basically do an interview like and then leave again, but you also you like getting to know the people and try to get more acquainted with the language in order to yeah, just get a more natural, build up a more natural connection and kind of get the real inside view of the scene. Yeah, but also as a sort of musician, I'll um, make music with them and actually collaborate with them as part of my field work as a sort of anthropology we call that participant observation so sort of being part of that and observing sort of the music making process while actually being being part of that so sort of yeah I'll have like very different roles in that so I'll yeah interview musicians also speak to industry representatives so actually not just focusing on the musician side but actually hearing from people that do put on work music projects why they do it how they do that or if they like don't do that why they don't do that so actually of incorporating like all those different perspectives from the sort of administrative side of things to the marketing side of things to the sort of musical and audience side of things so sort of going through all those perspectives and actually interviewing people as sort of part of that and then yeah like being part of that myself like I, I sort of use Ableton um, I can sort of just do basic music production but actually learning from those musicians how they produce music and really sort of getting in there and sort of being around those networks and going to all those venues so it's going to be, um, yeah, going to be a big project, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, this also connects nicely to the meta question I, I was planning to ask. It's about, because I find it very interesting now that we have had a, a fair amount of PhD students on, on this podcast, like that every field really features a completely different set of, of daily tasks and challenges. So I was going to ask like what the daily life of a musicologist looks like if you, if you mainly do like hands-on work or if you mainly read texts or write or yeah that's a really tricky one especially as a practice lab phd student with a sort of very disruptive work schedule um yeah because i'm sort of doing a lot of volunteering um and some teaching as well and um so yeah i think as a phd student in the uk it's probably really different um to like a phd in germany i think where it's more sort of, sort of less of well where you have like a research position as well but in the UK, you do a lot of teaching in your first year, so you would either sort of prepare that, but um, would mostly be sort of reading articles or actually actual music journalism as opposed to journal articles or academic articles, sort of seeing like how music is branded and also watching a lot of YouTube videos, which sounds more fun <laughs> than it is because you actually have to like rewind and rewind and rewind and actually uh, just sort of see what you're looking for and sort of compiling playlists um, but most of the time it's actually reading academic articles anthropology styles of actually just case studies and sort of right now I'm just working on my literature review um, just sort of before my first Viber um, at the end of next month so just reading certain case studies around the way that Arab um, musicians and Turkish musicians have been depicted so a lot of sociological studies and because I work quite interdisciplinary yeah, it's a lot of um, sort of journal articles from political science, sociology, media anthropology, summarizing them. And then, yeah, but most of the time I'm a big fan of sort of combining that, but a lot of creative work as well. So I do a lot of uh, music myself. So sort of combining that as well and using time to reflect because when you read a lot of stuff, it's always good to just take a couple of moments to actually bring all those strands together. And sort of make sense of what you're doing especially in the first year when you're still finding your narrative and still sort of shaping sort of main thesis of your project yeah usually at this point i i ask about 
favorite books i mean we can also talk about <laughs> if you have a favorite book or any book you can recommend maybe also about your topic or unrelated book i was also going to ask about your like if you have like a favorite piece of music or like some something you discovered recently that you could really um, mm. recommend people should look into so i think my yeah i think my favorite book of all times when it comes to musicology that's actually not musicological like it's not very academic at all which is why it's so great is uh, david tasman house why music matters he talks about music intimacy uh sex rock and roll he really brings music and emotion together covering the whole range of emotions and intimacy as well so i think that's the most important i think scholar when it comes to um the way music actually plays a role in our lives and how how deep that can go. He's a brilliant scholar. He's um, at the music, uh, the University of Leeds and um, he's there at the media School of Media Communication. And yeah, so his book is amazing. So he just talks about um, why music plays a role in our life and how and so on. But I'm also, I read a lot about um, cultural intimacy, music and intimacy in club cultures, because which is where it plays a like, role. And then another book I'm reading right now, which I can always recommend is uh, well re reading Max Frisch right now but that's also because I'm not <laughs> yeah. uh, I in Germany right now and I love reading my Swiss and German authors um because it's quite like as a sort of well as a PhD student as a lot of people know it's just um reading for pleasure can be really horrible and mainly you just sort of go um and watch a movie because you're very tired of reading words but it's quite interesting. which one are you reading a piece of music Sorry. uh Montauk yeah. right now it's more like sort of diary yeah. Um, and sort of fragments, which is really easy because you can just read three and then fall asleep, um, which is nice. And then another piece of music that's really good, I can always recommend to people, is um, the Jordanian band El Moraba. They're so amazing. It's so relaxing and lovely and just all those things. Um, they have this song called Ilham. It's I-L-H-A-M. It's a sort of mixture of, well, it's sort of Arabic, indie, dream pop, psychedelic it's it's just great the music is the music video is brilliant from well the whole album is brilliant from start to finish and that's something i can recommend to anyone interested in uh sort of arabic popular music it's a great sort of beginner's album to start with yeah that sounds great so i guess this is a good place to end this so thanks a lot for joining us and i had a great time thank you very much